This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's new issue, Head Case, is available in print and online and is full of great pieces that are perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Andrea Long Chu's essay, The Pink, on bottom surgery and the puzzles of feminist coalition building. When she appeared here on The Dig this past winter, Chu and fellow N Plus One writer Marissa Brostoff discussed Sex in the City and the X-Files, unraveling the tangled history of Marxism and queer theory. In her new essay, Chu takes up the phenomenon of the pussy hat as an occasion to consider political symbolism, universality, and the problem of constructing women as a coherent political subject. Chu writes, quote, Feminism never succeeded in securing women as a collective subject of history, as the Marxist intellectual tradition once hoped to do with the working class. Instead, she argues, contemporary feminism, quote, has become the go-to signifier for what the legal scholar Janet Haley calls convergentism. Feminism has resigned itself to the modest virtues of playing hostess for other, frankly, more persuasive political discourses, most of whose constituencies are composed of women, of course, but never simply as women. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N Plus One, Go to nplusonemag.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig at checkout. That's the dig with no spaces. You'll get three issues plus full access to the magazine's online archive and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. European politics are confusing and sometimes really quite scary. The xenophobic far-right is a powerful opposition force in France and Germany, and it has recently emerged in Spain, one of the few countries that had for a long time seemed immune to the post-crisis ascendance of nationalist parties. The far-right governs in Italy and Hungary. Meanwhile, the radical left has long since been crushed in Greece. In Spain and France, it has lost its momentum. The recent European Parliament elections witnessed a strong showing by the Greens and also by liberal parties aligned with French President Emmanuel Macron. This week and next, we're bringing you five episodes on European politics. Today, we're starting things off with Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose for an overview of the European situation and the debate on the European left over how to approach Europe and the EU. Then, an episode on British politics with Grace Blakely, Maya Goodfellow, and Richard Seymour. 
After that, an episode on French politics with Sebastian Budgen and Danielle Obano, a member of France's National Assembly with the left-wing La France Insoumise. Then, an interview on Spanish politics with Carlos del Clos and Magda Bandera. And finally, an interview with David Broder and Marta Fana on Italy. Obviously, Europe is a big and complex place, and this series only just scratches the surface. Interviews, for example, are notably lacking on countries like Poland and Hungary. But I can't do it all, and I can't do it all at once. And I do certainly plan on future shows about Central Europe. But I hope these interviews lay out and contextualize some of the big issues shaping European politics and confronting the European left right now, particularly the very question of Europe. Before we get rolling, this podcast is a listener-supported podcast, and the place that listeners support us is at the worldwide website patreon.com slash the dig. A contribution of $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity, or Feminism for the 99% by Nancy Fraser, Cynthia Rutza, and Tithi Bhattacharya. A monthly contribution of $20 or more gets you a box of left-wing books. We are constantly plowing new contributions into making the show better, into things like our new website, thedigradio.com, which has all of our episodes, the entire archive, searchable by guest and by topic. So, please contribute now, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose. Chris Bickerton teaches at the University of Cambridge and is the author of The European Union, A Citizen's Guide, from Penguin. Jerome Rose is a fellow in international political economy at the London School of Economics and the author of Why Not Default? The Political Economy of Sovereign Debt, published by Princeton University Press earlier this year. Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for for inviting us. So to start off, what do these elections mean? Elections that saw strong, if far from the feared, overwhelming results from the far right, very poor results from both the radical left and most traditional center left and right parties, and a huge surge by liberals and greens. What do these results mean, particularly in the context of the powers of the European Parliament being far, far more limited than those of a normal parliament, and in the context of people voting very differently sometimes in European elections than they do in normal national ones? For my part, I would say, um, I suppose people do vote maybe slightly differently for European elections. Probably the biggest difference is that far fewer people vote in European elections than they vote in national elections. So the turnout uh, is generally quite significantly lower. But I found that, you know, this time around, I thought the European elections were interesting, partly because they 
told us quite a lot about what's going on in each of the individual member states of the European Union. There were lots of national political battles that were being fought. And that was, you know, that came through in the elections. Um, just to give you one example in France, uh, you know, the two really big political players in France are the serving president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, and the far-right leader, uh, Marine Le Pen. You know, they were in the runoff uh, in 2017 for the French presidential elections. Um, and this was, if you like, a kind of, I mean, it was presented a bit as a rerun of of that. They were facing off against each other. And Marine Le Pen won by a very uh, small margin, but it seemed to quite accurately, accurately reflect the, the the way French politics is currently being organized. So, uh, I found it was a kind of a mirror into the current political state of, of Europe's uh, national politics. But unlike in the first round of the last national French, French national elections, the radical left led by Mélenchon, La France Insoumise, was like nowhere at all. That's not because the European elections, you know, for some reason gave us a, a different picture of the current state of French politics. I think um, it reflects the difficulties that, that Mélenchon and his party have had since the presidential elections, for lots of different reasons, to be honest, partly because they were left as basically the only de facto opposition within the French, even, to be honest, to some extent, the, the principal official opposition within the French parliament, and that's put a lot of scrutiny on them, a lot of pressure on them. Mélenchon's had a lot of difficulties, some of it driven by uh, attacks on his person and his party by the the state, some of it sort of self-inflicted. So it reflects, I think, a weakening and a sort of a falling away of some support for, for Mélenchon since uh, since the middle of 2017. Jérôme? Just to, to go back to your question um, and what you mentioned in terms of the limited powers of the European Parliament, I think that's one sort of crucial aspect in perhaps accounting for some of the lower turnout that we generally see in these type of elections. Although now the total turnout was actually uh, higher than it's been in 20 years, I believe. So that actually reflects a sort of a, a repoliticization, perhaps, of the notion of European politics. But I, I do think that it's very important to recognize that partly because of the limited powers of the European Parliament, but also because of the way that these elections are structured, it tends to actually be a reflection, kind of like Chris says, of, of the national political um, situation more than a reflection of, of European politics as a transnational phenomenon. And the reason for that is that the elections are essentially uh, held through uh, national parties, uh, which then join up in larger, politi larger political formations once they join the European Parliament. But it's that sort of the fact that people in the Netherlands or in Germany or in the UK ultimately vote for representatives that are allied to uh, or part of specific national political parties that then gives an opportunity for people to use the European elections to make a statement or to give a protest vote as well. So we do tend to see that the outcome of the European elections in general uh, tend to be reflective of that. And you see, for instance, that parties that either take a very clear pro-European integration stance or a very clear anti-European integration stance tend to do better in these elections than they do in national elections, uh, just because they are taken to be representative of a broader debate in domestic politics about the importance of European integration. I think that what, if we look at specifically at the outcome of these elections, uh, what was most striking to me, apart from the general trends that you mentioned is the, the tendency towards fragmentation. Uh, and I think that's really sort of indicative of a broader pattern in um, politics internationally, with people looking for basically an outlet to signal their displeasure with established centrist uh, mainstream parties. And of course, one of the tragic things is that the left hasn't been able to capitalize on that as effectively as we would like. 
Uh, but I do think that that fragmentation speaks to a broader crisis in European politics more generally with the mainstream parties. Uh, although that collapse perhaps wasn't as spectacular as some people had uh, anticipated, I think it is generally the tendency that we do see uh, when we look at the outcome. Uh, and, and the difficulty that that will lead to in terms of uh, creating sort of workable majorities within the European Parliament. The radical left's failure does seem to be transnational phenomenon of sorts. To, to what degree should we view this election as catastrophically predictive of future national elections? And to what degree is it more of just a serious warning sign? In Spain, Podemos and other recently quite promising radical groupings suffered major setbacks, not only in the e EU elections, but also in, in national and local elections recently. And then in the UK, where the left-led Labour Party has remained a, a bright spot for the radical left in national politics, they were surpassed by the Liberal Democrats in the EU vote, with the Greens very close behind them. And elsewhere in Italy and across Central and Eastern Europe, the, the left is, is almost nowhere at all. What's going on? Well, I think it depends. Um, there's a certain sort of uh, commonality, I suppose, um, a kind of pattern. Um, but uh, the cases that you mentioned, I mean, the British case and the Spanish case, I think are pretty different um, in some ways. And there are a lot to do with the difficulties, on the one hand, of a new party emerging, Podemos, and the splits within Podemos, the divisions within Podemos, quite complicated sort of doctrinal disputes about the nature of Podemos as a phenomenon, what it's trying to do, who it's trying to appeal to exactly, its relationship to traditional class politics and class categories. That division, I think, has been really difficult to to, to handle internally. And uh, for a new party, especially that's struggling enough to, to mobilize nationally, I think it was really hit by that. Another specificity of the Spanish case is that Podemos really struggled when the nationalism question emerged after the uh, after the Catalan independence, Catalan secession crisis. Podemos were doing quite well when politics was framed around you know economics, but much less well when it was framed around questions of national kind of identity and belonging. Is that then a similarity to the UK situation? No, I don't. Th well, I don't think so. I mean, they're such new. Uh, I mean, Podemos and the British Labour Party are so different. The Labour Party, I think, was basically paying for a very ambiguous position on Brexit. Uh, it was torn between trying to appeal to a large number of people who voted to stay uh, inside the European Union, many of whom are members of the Labour Party, um, but also trying to appeal to a large number of actual or former Labour Party voters who voted to leave the European Union. Um, and this sort of act of trying to please both camps, please nobody, and um, it lost votes, not as many as you would expect, to be honest, to the Brexit Party, but it lost many votes to the Liberal Democrats. And generally, I think, was also associated with the whole parliamentary sort of fighting that has created impasse over Brexit. So it was punished also for, as Jerome said, as being one of these mainstream parties. And there's a long story about the evolution of the British Labour Party, which we could go into. But um, it seems to me that both of these stories, again, I mean, the, the European elections are sort of interesting because they draw everybody together. And it's possible to generalise to some extent. Um, but the fundamental question, I think, is whether a European political life or political space exists that is transnational in quality and that leads to a form of transnational politics, partisan politics, um, reflected in the European Parliament. I don't think that's really what we have. And so we're always left to sort of fall back on these national specificities and to try and draw some sometimes sort of tenuous connections between them. It's the unavoidable way to talk about the European parliamentary elections, I think. 
Well, in terms of Spain versus the UK, to talk about that a little more, one, they they both do seem to have foundered on national questions of different sorts. In, in, the, in the UK case, uh, the question of Europe and how the UK relates to that. And then in, in Spain, the national secessionist question. But, it, and it, but a difference between them seems to be that Spain's EU vote is tracking pretty closely with the state of national politics within Spain. While it's hard to imagine, at least from today, that the Lib Dems overtaking Labour in the next general election. Do you think that's fair? It depends what sort of polls you take seriously. I mean, there are some polls emerging now which um, have suggested there was a recent YouGov poll in the UK just a couple of days ago, which gave as a sort of projection of um, votes in a, in a general election. The Liberal Democrats were ahead of the Brexit Party by a few percent, but they were number one. Brexit Party was two, and then Labour and Conservative were some way behind. I find that hard to believe in the sense that as soon as you have an election, then you have a campaign, and in a campaign, many things happen. And those of us who sort of were around a few general elections ago in the UK, where the Liberal Democrats under Nick Clegg were described as this new political force that were going to overturn the two-party system. We remember what you know came of that. So I'm probably a little bit skeptical about a poll like that, but it does suggest something kind of more fundamental is, is going on, that the main parties for possibly different reasons have really struggled to manage this question of, you know, of European membership. And in the Spanish case, that's just simply not the same because I think Spain's commitment to Europe is very different for historical reasons and whatever the divisions and ups and downs within the parties, there's quite a strong consensus around European memberships. So um, the question is a slightly different one, even though it does have echoes about how the left relates to the question of the nation. I think that is a difficult question for the left, it's no doubt. Jerome, you mentioned on this point that fragmentation is really the core of what's going on right now. Explain that a little bit and and what's driving, what you think is driving that process. Well, I mean, there's a longer term development that undergirds it in a sense. And you can take the work of Peter Mayer, for instance, as a starting point uh, when he has this uh, powerful little book called uh, Ruling the Void, where he talks about um, the general crisis of parliamentary democracies um, throughout Europe. Uh, and one of the ways in which the, the crisis of, of parliamentary politics expresses itself is this sense of loss, losing, like the mainstream parties are losing loyalty from their voters. And there's no more sort of very profound basis of support for uh, traditional centrist parties in the way that there was over the past 30 or 40 years prior to the crisis of 2008. That's gradually been hollowed out. And one of the results of that is that people tend to be much more fickle in terms of their political preferences and tend to vote rather differently across different national elections. So I can just give one example of the Netherlands, for instance, where 2017 national elections, uh, the Labour Party was virtually obliterated, received uh, less than 6% of the vote, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and actually, you know, seemed to be going down the path of Pasochification, as it's sometimes called, sort of the route followed by the Greek center-left party, PASOK. Uh, where that party was virtually annihilated as a result of its sort of embracing of austerity measures imposed by the European Union. Uh, It it appeared for a while like the Dutch Labour Party might be going down the same route and then just came out as the biggest party actually in the European elections in the Netherlands just now. And that is uh, apparently a reflection of the fact that the person leading the Labour Party into the European elections is actually a very powerful figure, uh, Timmermans, who is vying to become the next head of the commission. The expression of support for the Labour Party was in a way a coalescing of the pro-European camp around a single candidate, much more than support for the Labour Party as such. So what you see is that you see these developments changing rather rapidly in sort of unforeseen directions. 
And it becomes difficult to track, I think, a very broad and general tendency on the basis of individual election outcomes. Uh, and I think that actually, if you look purely at individual election outcomes, you miss the larger story uh, going on, which is this gradual hollowing, hollowing out of popular support or popular trust in political elites and especially in the uh, centrist establishment parties. And I think that's the real big story that undergirds all of this and that we need to constantly keep in mind when we talk about the individual election results um, as we're doing today. And then if we want to speak more specifically about why the left performed so poorly and wasn't able to capitalize on that uh, widespread discontent, I think it has something to do with what Chris said about the nature of the debate changing. So if you look at what happened in 2000, let's say between 2010 and 2013, 14, 15, the dominant narrative was one of the economic crisis of austerity and of the response to that. And especially in the Southern European countries, Podemos and Syriza were able to capitalize on that very effectively. But it seems that with the crisis sort of morphing onto a new terrain, sort of a more political terrain, with a national question becoming more and more prominent, it becomes more and more difficult for those uh, leftist parties to assert themselves effectively as a voice expressing the, the preferences of a clear constituency. Because that sort of national question cuts the left into just as it cuts the right into. It divides loyalties between them. And I think that's fundamentally uh, one of the problems that Podemos encountered in navigating uh, the difficulties around the question of Catalan independence. Uh, but it's also a question that uh, the Labour Party in, encounters when it comes to the question of Brexit and trying to please both sides of the story at the same time and ultimately not pleasing anyone at all, uh, I think is ultimately reflective of the fact that the debate has changed in a direction that is not particularly favorable to a kind of left politics because the discussion has moved away from the economic, uh, socioeconomic uh, aspects of the crisis towards the more political and especially the, the role of the nation within uh, that political uh, crisis. I, I think I think Jerome's definitely right. I think, um, but it seems like I mean it's a curious era that we sort of live in. Certainly in the framework of European politics, it may be that something similar is going on in the U.S., which is on the one hand you have this seemingly secular decline in people's trust and uh, even sometimes interest in 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 politicians, but you also have a kind of an era of possibility that's opening up where there are quite a few instances of quite dramatic politicization, sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right, sometimes on kind of issue-specific questions. Um, and what's, I suppose, particularly striking is that these two things are going on at the same time. If you like, you know, to use the language of of Peter Mayer that, um, that Jerome mentioned, you know, the, the politics of the void is also at the same time the politics of trying to fill the void. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. And, um, you know, I've been struck, for instance, just trying to really think about this this curious kind of um, phenomenon of the British left, you know, the British Labour Party kind of went through these years of being new Labour and being sort of post-ideological, pursuing this third way sort of post-leftist politics, if you like, committing itself to the market uh, in many respects. After that, it then had a sort of an era in the doldrums and then out of which you saw the emergence of this strong kind of radical, you know, ideological figure of Jeremy Corbyn, really reinvigorating the party and its base around kind of principles of sort of quite radical, you know, left principles. Uh, so there's, on the one hand, this kind of politicization of the party, the membership has expanded very, very significantly. Um, and it's really quite a different sort of party than it was once it had been transformed by Tony Blair in the 90s and early 2000s. But at the same time, if you look simply at the pure sort of um, the sociological composition of the party, it has also quite systematically drifted away from any sort of anchoring within the British working class or within British society that is 
considered to be working people uh, that live outside of urban areas and have, you know, uh, relatively speaking, low levels of education. It's become essentially dominated by an urban middle class and quite young movement. So it seems politically radical. And that's the kind of sense in which you feel like the void is being filled with more ideology, more ideas. But the sociological drift of the party is definitely away from being the old mass party that it was to being captured by a relatively small and not that representative kind of section of the population. So these two things, I think, are going on at the same time, and they create these curious contradictions even within just a single party. That brings up an interesting point, which is that if if we're seeing the the decomposition of the traditional social bases for traditional center-left and, and right parties, what what sort of social bases are being recomposed or composed? So I don't know what, uh, I mean, interesting to know what the answer to that is for different cases, especially interesting uh, maybe to think about the US. But in the British case, the new the Labour Party clearly has on the one hand drifted away from this kind of anchoring within the traditional working class and has become dominated by a sort of an urban and young and uh, educated uh, group of, uh, of members. That's, you know, that's quite sort of a, a fundamental transformation in the party that's taken place over quite a number of years. And we've not seen it because we've been, I think, captured by the sort of the the, the glitz and razzmatazz of this, you know, ideological sort of radicalism of Corbyn, but it's been happening be underneath the surface, if you like. So that's the story, at least in the UK. I don't know what it's like elsewhere. Well, I think that Chris says something very interesting, and to an extent, I do agree with it. I mean, there there appears to be a shift away from an identification with a traditional working class. But what I find interesting is the fact that Chris appears to position that firmly within sort of a non-urban um, geography. And that uh, seems to preclude the possibility of perhaps some kind of alliance between an emerging proletarianized young population that is highly overeducated, given the labor market opportunities available to it, and um, let's say the completely politically disenfranchised traditional working class that has suffered the brunt of deindustrialization in the areas that Chris mentioned. Uh, and I think that ultimately the challenge is that these are two very different constituencies. But I wouldn't consider them uh, to be one to be working class and the other not to be working class. I think that actually what's happening is a reconfiguration of class relations as a result of the fundamental transformation of, of the economy over the last 30, 40 years, whereby a large segment of young people who have grown up perhaps in middle class households find that economic opportunities that were supposed to be available to them in terms of their level of education and in terms of the level of welfare that they experienced uh, through their parents are no longer there. And I think that this actually offers up interesting opportunities for political alliances between different segments of the population around a socioeconomic program that would be basically, that would, would constitute itself precisely as that kind of new sort of working class formation, right? But it would have to recognize to some extent that that would have to be a political alliance between two groups that are to some extent different in their world outlook, to some extent different in their uh, historical trajectory and in terms of how they see the world because of their different positionality within society. Nevertheless, I do think that that is ultimately the challenge that a unified labor movement will have to overcome, rather than us posing that as a fundamental division that a priori cannot be overcome. Right? So I think that that's actually it's a challenge rather than uh, something that we should see as an unsurmountable uh, division. Quickly, I think this is a really interesting question because a, a core problem identified by left Euroskeptics is that is that Europe has no no demos no there's no European the people and as a result there can be no class struggle because class struggles take place 
within a demos. But that said, it's not that the EU entirely created the problem of this lack of a demos. Neoliberal globalization has long since fragmented what once for a long time seemed perhaps too optimistically to be this coherent working class subject as as the protagonist of left politics. So, so Chris, how, how does a, a people get stitched together in, the, in this context? Well, I think um, the, the, the place that the European Union plays is often um, misunderstood. I think it would be, you know, grossly sort of simplistic to present the European Union as in some way a kind of um, neoliberal sort of engine that's hammered its kind of or kind of beaten its way across social democratic Europe, sort of tearing it up. I think the European integration process and basically the European Union that we have today built around these principles that constitute the single market, the the four freedoms, the freedoms of uh, movement of people, goods, uh, services and capital. That seems to me pretty much a consequence, not a cause, but a consequence of the the decline of organized labor as a political subject and its um, political defeat in a number of particular instances. When labor was weak, it became possible to construct something that would be recognized today as the European Union. Um, I think the difficulty for the left, or some, I suppose, some sections of the left, when they have a debate about Europe, is that on the one hand, there are those who think that Europe is the terrain now in which you can reconstitute a new form of left politics. And that, I think, is entirely reasonable and coherent as a position, it just seems to me incredibly unrealistic, given that politics is still overwhelmingly sort of concentrated at the national level. And just look at DM25's, uh, led by Yanis Varoufakis's results in the EU elections, they failed to win a single seat. That's right. Um, and what the, I mean, the danger is kind of, on the one hand, you struggle to exist electorally when you pitch yourself that way. And there were efforts. I mean, it's worth remembering there were efforts this time around to have transnational lists um, for the European elections. Then they, they were simply so overwhelmingly, not even just unpopular, but there was just so little interest in it that um, those advocating it abandoned it. But it's also the case that once you get into the European sphere, you're dominated essentially by policy questions um, and you're sort of caught into this, you're part of this world where, you know, very detailed and quite specific policy questions are being discussed and debated, but not in a very political way. So for the labor movement, you get caught in, you know, very specific and policy related issues if you try and engage at the European level, whereas the politics remains at the national uh, level. The EU is an anti-politics machine of sorts. Well, you know, it's very political, but um, it's the the decisions it takes. I mean, people often say anti-politics. I think it's more that it's it's uh, not a public form of decision making. It's very powerful, but it essentially privatizes um, and desocializes, if you like, decision making. It's done behind closed doors. It's done in ways that bring small groups of people together. Um, but decisions are not sort of out in the open, engaging large numbers of people in the way that we associate with democratic decision-making. So it's pretty powerful, but it's not very democratic. And what it lacks, perhaps more than anything else, is this is this element of publicity that I think is one of the key features of a democratic form of uh, form of politics. So for the left, I suppose it's you know it's it's difficult how to position yourself, but. Um, but I think the European Union sort of really just um, is a symptom of the problem of the weakness of the left at the national level. That explains its, you know, its power today. I don't think it's really the cause, I would say. In terms of the publicity effect, just to, to clarify, do you mean sort of like a, a democratic brand that would make people feel represented? I suppose. Well, to, I mean, to be specific, I suppose um, 
I mean, the kind of languages, you know, people people might not be familiar with the work of, uh, of Schatz, Snyder. Um, there's a book called The Semi-Sovereign People, which is a very short little book, very easy to read. Uh, I'd recommend it. Uh, and he makes this argument, which is basically that, you know, democratic politics uh, is based on this presumption that conflict, you know, politics is all about conflict. Um, you can have conflict that is contained within a room with 20 people around the table. The doors are closed and nobody knows anything about this. You can have a very conflictual discussion but it's entirely private. To me, that really incarnates something like the European Council, where you have heads of state and government that sit around, but this is a room, a closed room. There are no minutes for these meetings. It's very difficult to attribute any sort of responsibility for the decisions. Important decisions are being made, however, but in an entirely private fashion. The publicity, I think, is when you start to enlarge the scope of conflict, get more people involved, get populations involved, large groups, and then you don't know the outcome. It becomes something that parties then have to shape and get involved in. Political organization changes quite radically when more people are involved. So I think the European Union sort of is very powerful, makes a lot of decisions, has a lot of policies, but the way in which it's done is a way that really excludes sort of mass politics from being the the, the key actor, if you like, in, um, uh, in, in, in decision making. And just to lay some of this out for listeners outside of Europe, it's an incredibly bizarre system where the executive, which is essentially a body made up by representatives of, of, of national governments, essentially through the, the European Commission, which it appoints, acts as the executive acts as a, le- a legislature, but a legislature that acts in secret. And then the, the, the purported legislature, the European Parliament, basically merely has a veto power. Is that right? Well, the parliament is a bit more powerful than that uh, in the sense that you know, the Parliament is involved in confirming the appointments in the European Commission, and it has it flexed its muscles by refusing to appoint certain commissioners that have been nominated for various reasons in the past. It needs to approve the European budget. And the Parliament has co-decision power in a lot of uh, areas, and that means that uh, if there's a particular policy that's that's been proposed by the commission the council is involved in you know elaborating and developing that policy representatives from the council and the commission meet with representatives from the european parliament and they have to and they have to come to to an agreement so the parliament is definitely involved the difficulty with the parliament i think is that in order for it to be um, influential it has to be unified um, it has to have small numbers of people that represent it as an institution, as a whole, as a corporate body, if you like. Now, that gives the parliament a lot of influence in these institutional conflicts at the European level to fight against the commission and to fight against the council. But the more unified the party, the parliament is, the less represented it, uh, representative it is of European society, which is clearly divided and fractured, as we've been saying. So the parliament has a kind of Faustian sort of choice to make. Does it maximize its influence by being uh, unified, but at the expense of being representative. And that's the dilemma, I think, that it's been facing for a number of years. Uh, And it's tended to opt for unity and influence. And I think that's becoming increasingly difficult because it simply is a bit less unified than it was. These dominant party families are losing their their hold, these party groupings. And so a more fractured parliament, I would say, is a better parliament, but it's also more difficult for it to exercise its influence uh, across the European Union. Jerome? Yeah, I mean, I largely agree with that analysis, and it just goes to show the sort of the the, the compl- enormous complexity involved in having a kind of uh, unified transnational politics at the European level, because the very constitution of that, the material constitution of that politics in the form that, in which it exists today, is so highly complex and so highly technical that it tends to scare a lot of voters away from the very start, because it seems 
it seems like something that's very difficult to relate to. And I think that there's a very intuitive kind of reaction against that, uh, precisely because it is not something that is easily uh, understood. It's not very uh, transparent. And it, it ultimately feels like something that is very far away uh, from people's everyday lives. So I think that's a fundamental challenge that you're going to have in any form of transnational politics. And I think that's precisely the challenge that past initiatives have always faced when it comes to trying to articulate a European project at the transnational level. Nevertheless, I do think that it's also interesting to look at how that particular transnational structure emerged over the past decades and how that's ultimately reflective, not just of, I mean, it is a very much a set of technocratic institutions, right? If you look at you know, the European Central Bank in particular, but also if you look at the, the way that the European Commission functions, uh, it functions very sort of technocratic and inherently anti-democratic ways. But at the same time, one of the key decision-making platforms within the European Union is the European Council and the, European, and the Council of the European Union, which is where the heads of state come together and the, the, the ministers come together to actually set key directions uh, for the future development of the Union, but also um, to um, initiate and enact uh, legislation. And this is actually an intergovernmental platform that to a very large extent actually reflects the difficulty of bringing together the priorities of 28 different governments. And that creates another added layer of complexity in the sense that you no longer just have a set of anti-democratic supranational institutions, but you also have the individual wills of 28 member states that all claim to have a democratic mandate and want to then sort of collectivize that mandate at the European level. Uh, which adds for another layer of complexity. Uh, yet what we've seen, and that I think is, is, is quite interesting, is that in that group of 28, there's been a relative degree of elite consensus, notwithstanding important conflicts over, over national uh, uh, preferences. Uh, but there's nevertheless been a broad consensus on the neoliberal direction of the European project. And in that respect, I think that we have to also understand that the uh, European Union as such was very much constructed by nation states. And it very much remains the creation of nation states. And it actually tries to recreate at the European level uh, a set of political institutions that reflect the, the liberal political institutions that we currently have at the level of the nation state. It does so in, in awkward ways and in extremely complex arrangements. But ultimately, the model remains one of sort of liberal democratic representation through this sort of tripartite dist uh, distinction between the, the legislative, the executive and the judiciary, I think complicates the picture even further because... This is not just simply like the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, a non-responsive, unaccountable international organization. It's actually one that is interpolated by national politics in very complex ways. And we need to try to find out, like, you know, at what level do you insert yourself into that? And at what level can you actually extricate yourself from that? Because it's so profoundly intertwined with the, the, the domestic politics right? and the, the national politics. To what degree does it also reflect power imbalances between European nation states? Uh, well, to a large extent, I think, um, but probably more even than it might have done in the past. I think one of the, and if you ask, you know, if you ask somebody from uh, a small EU member state, you know, you know, somebody from Ireland, for instance, or somebody from uh, a kind of a small Eastern European state, or maybe a Baltic state, their preference has tended to be for supranational decision making, and particularly to have the commission being rather powerful, because the commission, officially at least, is meant to represent the common European interest. And so that structure is meant to defend the small countries from the, uh, the dominance of the large countries because commissioners are meant to leave their nationalities kind of at the, at the door when they get appointed at the European Commission level um, and to think of this kind of wider European interest. Now, 
over the last, I'd say over the last sort of, I mean, since the early 1990s, really, since the Maastricht Treaty, I think the European Union has increasingly moved towards a situation where power is increasingly invested in intergovernmental parts of the European Union. And the, the obvious winner in the whole sort of competition for influence across different EU institutions over the last decade or so uh, has been the European Council. Now, the problem of the European Council for a small member state is if you're sat around the table with another, you know, 20, 27 EU member states, and if you're Slovakia, um, or if you're, uh, I don't know, um, if Greece. you're, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly, you simply, you simply do not have the same sort of clout. So it's one, it's behind closed doors, and two, the asymmetries between the member states are no longer compensated for by this obligation to sort of. Uh, consider the wider European interest, uh, and so or, I think, or mediated by those sorts of bodies, it just un- unmediated. It's just raw, raw politics and power, really. Uh, but also, more than anything else, we have to remember behind closed doors. And so, you know, if Germany tells everybody what to do, or if the French and Germans kind of decide they'll just do what they want, much less. It's much less. It's much easier to do that when you don't also have to defend it publicly. Um, and what emerges is a kind of you know, grudging consensus. So I think maybe more than, you know, for some time, the the power dynamics really do matter. I I think I saw that you wrote something, if I remember correctly, arguing that basically Varoufakis's sin was making transparent power relations that were supposed to be secret. Well, I mean, the sin in the sense of considered from the perspective of the Eurogroup, yes. Um, I think what he transgressed was a kind of norm of secrecy, which more than perhaps any other institution is really invested in the Eurogroup. I mean, the Eurogroup is the sort of space within which incredibly important decisions are made about the future of the Eurozone, but it has no real institutional existence in the European treaties. Um, It's not recognized as such, or at least it's not recognized as having any decision-making power, and yet it's the space where very important decisions are made. Uh, And I think Varoufakis, in a number of different ways, not least because he recorded discussions that were had within the Eurogroup and then threatened to publicize them, um, really, you know, transgressed that particular norm, the norm of, uh, of secrecy. Wow, that's disturbing. <laughs> uh, Jerome? Yeah, and I think that I mean, it's very interesting that uh, this decision-making structure appears to depend so much on that extreme sort of unaccountable and secretive dimension. Yet at the same time, I think that also it, it's interesting to interrogate to what extent that's a development that uh, has also affected national politics as well. So, like thinking of decision making behind closed doors, thinking of the influence of lobbyists on policy making, thinking of uh, unaccountability. Um, I think that these are issues that affect a lot of countries also that are outside of the European Union. I'm, I'm reminded of of something that um, uh, Van der Rompuy, the, the former uh, president of the European Council, once said when he came to our university, the European University Institute in Florence, to give a talk. He made a very sort of disturbing statement in which he said that sometimes in a time of crisis, there's simply no time for the democratic decision making because the pace of democratic decision making uh, does not take into account the pace at which markets operate. So you need to have a form of decision making that is sort of decoupled from the democratic logic to be able to respond to the demands of markets. The sort of thing, the sort of thing exposed in Adam Tuz's book. Exactly. So there's there's a tendency here to try to think of decision making in in ways that can respond to the the requirements imposed by a globalized and financialized uh, world market. 
And I think that fundamentally, in, in one way or another, all countries are subjugated to that logic. And you see that similar uh, dynamic at play also in countries that are outside of the European Union. Where the European Union is different is that it has com completely constructed a new political superstructure, if you will, that ran in tandem with that process of globalization and financialization and was able to institutionalize that much more effectively and uh, to really create a form of politics that was effectively insulated from democratic pressures in order to be able to respond both to the complexity of decision-making between 28 member states, but also to the, um, the, the difficulty, really, of managing uh, a completely globalized and financialized market economy. So I, I think that there's, a, there's an extreme uh, layer of, of, of complexity going on here that, uh, on the one hand, yes, you have this extremely anti-democratic set of decision-making structures that are there, uh, that, you know, Yanis Varoufakis in his book on the, on the Euro crisis exposed uh, very powerfully, I think. On the other hand, you have to ask yourself the question if simply introducing accountability into that uh, by forcing these institutions to publicize their notes, for instance, uh, on, on important meetings is going to change anything. Because it seems that the logic and the structure of that form of organizing politics is, it responds to something much more profound and a much more profound structural change in the global political economy. That in one way or another, all countries have undergone, uh, but the European Union has simply driven to the extreme. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Next Left, a new podcast from The Nation magazine. We are witnessing an explosion of progressive political energy. New candidates are running for public office high and low, and they're winning. Stay up to date and informed about these politicians who are striving to change our country for the better. Every Tuesday, Next Left host and Nation National Affairs correspondent John Nichols will interview these insurgent politicians who aim to reshape our nation's politics by bringing bold, progressive policies to their cities, counties, states, and to D.C. Don't miss this week's interview with Lee Carter, the former Marine and member of the Virginia House of Delegates, as he talks about universal health care, fixing our broken workers' comp system, and how true democracy comes only when we eliminate concentrations of wealth and power in politics. Next Left, the political podcast that gets personal. Download and subscribe to Next Left, wherever you get your podcasts. To get to the core of a debate that we've been circumnavigating, does the left have a future, a possible future within the EU, or do the EU and Eurozone have to end if national lefts stand any sort of chance of winning power and transforming society? Because th there seems to be a problem on, on two levels here. F first, the way that the dominance of the Europe debate marginalizes the left, which is something we've discussed a bit. And then second, the way that, that European institutions can concretely curb left-wing politics like we saw in Greece with Syriza and like people are worried we'll see if, if Corbyn is prime minister and the UK is still in the EU. Yeah, I think there are, I suppose there are two things about that. One is how important is the left's relationship to democracy I think, um, and the changing nature of the left's relationship to democracy. My impression is that um, if the sort of the European left was to commit itself to trying to pursue 
sort of you know policies or sort of uh, social policies, if you like, at the European level within the actually existing European Union than it would be, and it has done, I think, since the late 1980s, done that at the expense of uh, a more democratic form of politics. And that's a kind of sort of trade-off, which um, I think does more damage to the left maybe than was realized at the time, because there's something sort of... Um, it goes to the very origins of the left politically is to sort of associate itself with the expansion of the franchise and to pursue sort of projects of universal suffrage uh, democracies associated with the history of the left in a way that it's maybe going back to the Chartists. That's right. I mean, there's something intrinsic about the connection between the two, which is why I think maybe the social democratic sort of parties have, you know, have really struggled with the phenomenon of European uh, integration. I mean, some people do have a sort of slightly more moderated position, which is to say that, you know, it's possible to sort of argue for more radical reforms, but within the European Union, in some ways, the jury is out. I mean, it's not really been tried. Uh, It's an interesting question to think what those reforms might be exactly. My main objection, I suppose, is to say, if you accept that enshrining at the level of constitutional law the four freedoms, which is the ones that we've mentioned already, if you accept that that is part of the problem and that needs to be changed, if you then were to change that, it's not clear to me what would be left exactly of the European Union, because the single market and these four freedoms are really at the very core of of that. So you could, for instance, get rid of the the eurozone really restructure and the eurozone in such a way where you have different tiers to it or you uh, return to national currencies but you'd still be faced with the problem that i think enshrined within the concept of the single market is a particular relationship between politics and markets which is what jerome was talking about before i think he's quite right there's been a, a a willingness to accept the dominance of markets over political objectives uh, and that's been sort of uh, achieved through a number of decisions made by the European Court of Justice over the, the, the 1960s into the 70s, and then was really enshrined with the, the single European Act of the, uh, of the mid-1980s. If you don't change that, I don't really see how you could reorientate the European Union towards something that would be recognizably a left-wing project. Um, so for me, sort of, at the end of the day, I, I do struggle to see how you could change it without simply changing it so beyond, you know, any sort of recognition of what it currently is at the moment. And Jerome, before I get your response, uh, Chris, you've, you've written that in, in some ways, Syriza's defeat was just a faster paced recapitulation of what happened to French President Francois Mitterrand in the early 1980s. And so exiting the euro does not accomplish an exit of, of global capitalism or these these market questions. So if socialism in one con- one country is more impossible than ever before, w- what can Lexit accomplish? I-, I would probably contest that it's more impossible than ever before. It certainly has a bad rap, this idea that you sort of can achieve these things through the framework of the actually existing nation state. Um, I mean, there's this longstanding debate between Wolfgang Strick and Jürgen Habermas about uh, Habermas accuses Wolfgang Strick, who kind of seems to favor pursuing these things through the level of the nation state as a as a sort of statist, sort of nostalgic, uh, you know, romantic sort of position. And Strick always says, no, no, his is just a realistic analysis of where the balance of sort of political power lies. It's, uh, the the nation state, though it's in sort of in, uh, it has its place within this complex kind of European architecture, is enormously powerful in policy terms. You know, uh, and the idea that 
things can't be achieved that are really historically significant from the perspective of left politics through the nation state, I think is is wrong. If the left was to capture the state and capture state power with a genuinely left project, it could do enormous numbers of things. It would at some point, I suppose, come to sort of a clash with the European legal framework and it would have to sort of test the capacity of that. And I suspect it would have to simply break a number of laws uh, and simply ignore some of the instructions being sent by the, you know, to the national capital from uh, from the from the commission. But it's not really been tested yet. Um, so I think what would be achieved, I suppose, is that for all the power of the global markets and for globalization, I think the actual existing record of the European Union as a social actor has been relatively poor and has not proven a particularly fruitful route um, uh, compared with the potential that still remains within the at the national level. It's certainly true that that perspective probably does depend a bit on where you're looking uh, and the size of a state, I think, is probably quite decisive. I mean, you know, the capacity of the Netherlands as an independent state, but is the capacity of sort of France or Germany is probably different if you were to take away entirely the European edifice. So that's certainly a consideration. But but the Mitterrand, uh, just to follow up quickly, the, the Mitterrand example does indicate that there will be big obstacles for socialism in one country beyond the European pressures. Yeah, but the Mitterrand example is a really interesting one. I see it as, as ultimately a loss of faith um, and of will. I wouldn't describe it as something that was written in stone in a sort of an objective mm-hmm. sense. And what happened was that Mitterrand was elected in 81 on quite a radical platform and he started to implement some of his measures. Um, but almost upon his election, he started to be aware of a sort of um, a certain fear in the uh, certainly the global capital markets with where France was going, and he wasn't sure he was going to be able to maintain France's position um, within the currency, sort of um, the, the European currency system as it existed at the time. And so he was faced then, uh, after a relatively short time in office, with this decision about whether he takes the franc out and uh, devalues the franc, or whether he really tries to defend the franc by staying within the European monetary sort of arrangements. Now, my feeling is that the reason why he wanted to keep France in is that ultimately he felt like, and there was a phrase by his prime minister at the time, Pierre Mauroy, where Mauroy said, he said um, he was describing this period where they really had to just decide, do we keep the franc in or not? And he said it felt like they were sort of driving on black ice. It was this uncertainty. It was this sense of moving into uncertain terrain. Um, And I think that's what, in some ways, really has to be accepted. I mean, it wouldn't be easy, but nor would it be in any way certain, but it doesn't mean to say that it wouldn't be possible. And uh, and I think the French case was a case of pulling yourself back from what you felt was a kind of precipice, uh, not a, a sort of an evidence of having, you know, of, of actual failure. It was having not really tried, I think, is the French lesson. Right. Jerome? Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here that I, I don't even know where to start, but maybe I could start with... Start the, anywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, 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 the Greek case and i think that uh that's actually a very important one because sometimes the greek case is mentioned in 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 the context of the brexit debate as well uh as a a very clear-cut example of where the anti-democratic tendencies of the eu absolutely shattered uh you know a left political project and i think that that reading of the greek case is uh, to a large extent right what i question is to what extent that is relevant to the current situation in which britain finds itself And the reason that I question that is, first of all, because of the position of the Greek uh, economy and the Greek state within the larger uh, Eurozone and the EU as a whole. 
constituting as a small peripheral country uh, with absolutely no control over its own currency or its own banking system, completely dependent on the ECB for emergency liquidity assistance, uh, with a number of large debt payments coming due and absolutely no financial reserves, finding itself in a position of absolute vulnerability. Its defeat was almost, almost, and I'm not saying entirely, but it was almost predetermined by the nature of it, the balance of power as it existed at that time. And I think that there was, to an extent, there was a possibility in that case to uh, make the case for a rupture, at least as a stick behind the door, as a potential threat in order to obtain concessions from the creditors. Although that threat was much more powerful in 2011, 2010, uh, 2011, when the majority of the debt was still held by the European banking system. But there was, a, there was an argument that potentially Greece could have in that moment through a rupture, at least obtained some breathing space to be able uh, to, through devaluation, eventually recover and get out of its predicament. I think that the, the, the UK situation is, is very different. So I think it's a bit dangerous also to invoke the Greek example, first of all, because the challenge in Greece was really a left challenge to the anti-democratic imposition of austerity and neoliberal reform coming from Brussels, from Frankfurt, uh, and from the capitals of the, ma the major creditor powers, and from Washington, D.C., of course, uh, through the International Monetary Fund. Whereas in, in Britain, I think the initiative to leave the European Union is very firmly in the hands of, of the Tory party and of those who are challenging it from the right, especially the Brexit party and, and Farage. And of course, I, I understand also to an extent Chris's argument that there's a danger in ceding that uh, ground to these right-wing forces. Uh, but I nevertheless also think it's dangerous to simply equate the Grexit narrative with the Brexit narrative in the sense that the challenge originally came from the other side. So the challenge made towards Europe from Britain is actually a challenge made by a core country that occupies a relatively powerful position within the overall framework um, that has the dominant financial center that to some extent is still a relatively, although it doesn't have much industrial production, is still a relatively weighty economy. And that, uh, in terms of its population, is, 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 is one of the, the, the bigger players in, in European politics. Uh, I think that the, the, the power dynamic there is, is different. And I think that a Corbyn government would not encounter the same, also because of the nature of, the, the, of Britain not being a member of the Eurozone, uh, would not encounter the same constraints as Greece. And I think that it would actually be possible to uh, achieve quite a lot for Britain uh, inside the European Union before those actual firmly anti-democratic constraints, which are certainly there, would kick in. And actually there, I think it's also crucial to remember that Britain occupies a very problematic position itself. I mean, it is, of all the European, according to OECD uh, data released last year, is of all the European countries, it is the third most unequal after redistribution. It is a country where, you know, there are profound homegrown problems that have very little to do with the anti-democratic restraints being imposed by the EU as such, and that are very firmly a product of domestic policy decisions, and that could very easily be resolved through domestic policy decisions. I think that the UK has much more room for maneuver than Greece had in 2015, uh, especially when it comes to the issue of housing, which is a major issue, given the extreme homelessness and the extreme difficulty that people of, poor, of, of lower means have in accessing affordable housing. It has uh, the capacity to um, do a lot more, essentially, than, than either Greece or, or many other peripheral countries of the Eurozone are able to do, given the restrictions that they encounter. So I don't think that a left project as such is, will be, will be um, dead in the water the moment that it comes to power in, in the UK as a result of the restrictions imposed by the EU. I think the much more dangerous restrictions are those of international capital flows that would respond irrespective of whether or not Great or Britain is, is a member of the European Union in terms of the potential of capital flight, in terms of the capacity of the city of London to basically quash 
any uh, attempt at uh, regulating it through divestment or, or, or uh, you know, um, uh, moving headquarters, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think that there are certainly very important uh, limitations to take into account, but I think that those of the sort of globalized financial system would strike the UK much faster and much more painfully than those of the European Union as such. And as such, it, I don't think the priority should be necessarily on leaving the EU. The priority should be much more about thinking like, how do you actually counter capitalist class power in a context, irrespective of whether you're in or out of the EU, in a context of such a highly financialized and highly globalized economy? So I think that's a, that's a broader question that I think we need to address, and that I think we uh, would be very interesting to talk about a little bit more. But can I can I can, yeah can I slightly rephrase what um, Duran just said? Because I think it's um, it might get it sort of the wrong way around. I think how you to how do you how you would build such a project that would challenge sort of the the entrenched sort of power of of business within a um, an open capitalist economy? I think is the right question, but I think it couldn't be done without building a mass movement. Um, Absolutely. And the question is, can you build a mass movement within the context of a political life that contains the dynamics that we've been describing about the European Union? Mm -hmm. um, that's where I think the left relationship to, to democracy really, really is very important. I would suggest, I think, that if you were to see the emergence of a mass movement such as that, you would end up with some sort of decisive confrontation between the nature of the political system at the national level as it exists within the European Union and what you're trying to achieve with your social movement. Because the way politics works within the European Union is that on the one hand, national politics is, or on the one hand, politics remains at the national level, but the separation between politics and policy is very stark. So at the national level, you have, if you like, uh, politics without policy, but at the European level, you then have policy without politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and this separation between national governments, national sort of um, ministers and sort of serving governments that discuss and deliberate and do a lot of things at the European level, um, and the connection that they then have to their own domestic societies is necessarily attenuated given the actually existing European Union. If you were to build this mass you know, movement that was to fundamentally challenge the the basic set of social relations that we um, that we have come to 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 live within today. I don't see how that could actually develop without, at some point, fundamentally challenging this separation between you know domestic societies and their own uh, governments that is imposed by the structures of the European Union. So it's not, I think, the right thing to say <clears throat> to present it in policy terms, which is to say what sort of aspect of European law makes uh, a particular left-wing policy illegal? Does it or does it not? What does the European Court of Justice say? What do the treaties say? Not to present it in policy terms, to just forget the policies for a second. Think of the basic social movement that would need to be created in order to give any sort of left project the chance of transforming society, and then think about whether that would be compatible with the European Union. And my impression is that the European Union has emerged out of the death of mass politics, the emergence of this void that Peter May has described, and it is in some ways an arrangement designed to rule the void. Um, that is what it is. And so without even talking about policies, I think if we just talk about building a, a sort of a real movement, the European Union becomes a, an active impediment. It seems like this might be an order of operations question, mm -hmm. exiting the EU and then building and then building a left national alternative, which will be what will have to happen in the UK if the UK does exit, or building the left alternative 
and then engaging in an inevitable and necessary confrontation with the EU that plays out how it plays out, might play out with an exit, might play out in ways that we can't imagine. Yeah, then I think that that's fundamentally the point that I was driving at in the sense that, um, I mean, I completely share Chris's critique of the European Union. So I think that fundamentally, when you do build towards the kind of social power, you build the kind of social movement that is capable of pushing for the kind of shift in, in, in power structures that we want to see, um, you're going to have inevitably a confrontation with the firmly anti-democratic institutions as they exist at the European level. That confrontation is certain to be there. Uh, my question is, will you build that confrontation while still being embedded in those institutions and building your power out from there and then engaging in the confrontation? Or do you engage in the confrontation when you're literally without, you, literally without arms, you're taking a knife to a gunfight, as it were? Right? And I think my concern is that that is the situation in which the British left currently finds itself in the Brexit debate. So strategically, taking the knife to the gunfight at this point in time, to me, seems to suffer from the same problem of political voluntarism that is often ascribed, rightly, to those who wish to reform the EU from within. Because I believe that neither is it possible to reform the EU from within, given the current balance of forces, nor is it possible to leave the EU and assume that to be the trigger for a profound socioeconomic transformation at home in the absence of the type of social movement that you just described. So it would seem to be, uh, for me, a, a matter of timing or a matter, matter of sequencing uh, strategically. I would say that if you want to have the type of confrontation with the firmly anti-democratic nature of the EU in which we agree, the first place to start would be to build that kind of social power, to build that kind of social movement that could, in that inevitable confrontation, potentially win. My, my point is that if you take that confrontation at a point where I think we both agree you don't have that power, you don't have that capacity, it may be that you end up tripping on the same sort of tripping into the same trap of, of political voluntarism that we also ascribe to those who wish to reform the EU from within, because the, the power constitution is not there. In some ways, the question is difficult to answer in, in the abstract. These are sort of different strategies. What has worked where, um, what is working where, what evidence is there of it being possible to do one thing or the other? Um, I mean, I was struck, for instance, by um, if you go back to sort of some of these important social sort of demonstrations and movements that took place around the time of the, the Eurozone crisis and a few years before, kind of at the time of the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, the kind of the, you know, 2010, 2011, 12, around then, uh, there's a lot of mobilization, a lot of people out in the streets, a lot of people out in sort of squares, spending a lot of time there. Um, those people who've looked and sort of studied the kind of things that were being talked about there, there was very little discussion of Europe as such. These were really sort of movements orientated around discussing kind of national problems. And the European dimension was sort of somehow absent. Um, I think it would have to be taken, you know, really head on. I think there's no way, uh, there's no way around it. I suppose what I'm saying is you can't go that far. I mean, what you're saying, suggesting, Drone, is there's almost a kind of two-stage process, which is build things up at the domestic level and then, you know, sort of uh, confront the European level when you've got some some power and some uh, some numbers. I think depending on what the politicization or sort of political movements take place around issues, around questions, it depends what those questions are particularly. But often, I think, it's very difficult to avoid the European issue, um, even from the very beginning, not because the European Union is so sort of um, enormously powerful as a kind of super state that lords it over the, the member states, just because the the day-to-day -day life of national governments is invested in this kind of transnational cartelized, you know, form of politics, where they discuss and, uh, and act together on a, on a very regular basis. 
so you're always at the very you know at the very beginning of any sort of debate i think the european dimension comes in and it would have to be said uh, there would have to be a very clear and very firm attitude about you know what position do we take and it's basically an either or either we say you know our position is that we need to leave in order to pursue these things and we would you know think about ways in which we can leave or it's that you're committed to the european project in some way and that discussion i think probably is better to be had early on uh, as early on as possible i think it's high time actually that the left has a real reckoning with its uh, policy and attitudes towards european integration in a very profound way to really think think what that is um, and how it's affected its own you know its own actions and its own performance Shifting gears before I, I let you both go, something I wanted to make sure we covered is that in, in recent years, many on the left, my, myself included, have declared the center to be dead. But I wonder if that declaration wasn't a bit premature in that it seems like we're seeing a revitalization of the center in places like Spain and France because people see it as a bulwark against the far right. Do you agree with that? And and also, relatedly, what do you make of this huge vote for the Greens and Liberal parties? Well, I suppose it depends a bit on the centre, what you mean by the centre. Right. Um, that's evolved over time. Um, what you seem to be describing is a kind of a sort of a Macronist centre of the kind of that's emerged in France. That's very different from what we might have understood as being the centre in the past, uh, which was a kind of sort of ground that was on the had that 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 relied if you like on the active polarization of left and right in order to chart out some sort of center ground what happened in france is very different you really had a collapse of these political traditions and the centrist sort of ground that macron's carved out is a kind of new political space i think even centrism is maybe the wrong word to describe is the wrong term to use because that presupposes the spectrum of left versus right um i think macron how about neoliberal techno populism well i i definitely be much more sort of supportive of that. I think that does kind of characterize quite well um, what's going on in uh, in somewhere like France. Um, so in some ways, it's kind of maybe the, the way to think about it is really what does what does centrism mean today, and what you know the tradition of centrism compared to what it has been in the past, which has had a, a very clear relationship certainly to the left and to social democracy. Recast today, what are, when we talk about the centrism, when we talk about centrism, what do we actually mean? And I'd urge us to actually to be more concrete and specific. You know, what are exact? What exactly do we? How do we characterize Macronism as a political phenomenon? Perhaps without using the language of centrism, in fact, but using new language. Uh, that's what I would probably you know push for. Trump. Yeah, I think that maybe we need to reconceive what we uh, what we mean when we talk of the this, the death of the center. And I think that it was never going to be a very uh, realistic prognosis that the death of the center would simply mean that they would gradually drop to zero percent of the vote <laughs> and, and and just disappear from view altogether. Uh, I think not. rather what yeah, I think rather what's happening and and that I think is true and that does continue uh, is that there is a gradual on the one hand polarization. Uh, in the sense that people are fleeing the old mainstream parties towards parties, either, unfortunately, we not as much as we would like towards the radical left, uh, significantly more towards the radical right uh, or the extreme right. But at the same time, this fragmentation that I mentioned, and I think that the consequences of that in the aggregate are just increasing political disorder and increasing difficulty on the part of established elites, established institutions, 
to simply rule the void as they previously did, right? So there is an. Uh, I think is ultimately what we're witnessing is a is a, is a crisis of of governability almost of uh, advanced capitalist societies that is largely a result of the dynamics that were set in motion, you know, 40 years ago with the start of neoliberalism that were radicalized ever since the global financial crisis and the response to it after 2008, and that is very much continuing. I don't see that changing. The fact that centrist parties have here and there managed to sort of reassert themselves or sl uh, slightly boost back uh, doesn't alter the fact that I think uh, on the aggregate, uh, there is a, a much more disorderly, a much more chaotic political scene today than we had uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so I think fundamentally, that is the, the defining feature, kind of the interregnum, if you will, that we're living through, right? That kind of like the chaotic situation out of which some new there will have to be a coagulation of new political forces and new social forces out of that sort of chaotic situation. And, and I think that's fundamentally the transition that we're living through. Uh, and that is what we mean when we talk of the death of the center. It doesn't mean that it simply disappears, but it's that it, its hegemony over its dominance over uh, the political scene has evaporated and given rise to a period of transition in which new forms of political action will have to be articulated. Daniel, I'm, gonna have, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid I've got to shoot off. I'm really sorry. Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No problem. My pleasure. It was really interesting. Enjoyed the, the you, discussion. Jerome, two two last things I'd like to discuss with with you is most people I know see the Greens as fairly neoliberal, but I've seen some comments from lefty people in support, and the Greens' strong showing across Western and Northern Europe does seem to be due in part to growing consciousness about climate change, and that's a good thing. What's your take on the the Greens, and what do you make of their strong showing? Yeah, I think we have to be uh, again. We have to be context sensitive here because I think that Green parties have different historical trajectories depending on on where you look. And I think that if you look at Germany, for instance, the Greens have actually a legacy. They, they, they've been in government. Uh, they've actually been in favor of the Iraq War. Uh, they've been thoroughly neoliberalized to a large extent, and you know, to some extent, would now favor, I guess, a model of neoliberal globalization with windmills uh, and electric cars, uh, which would be an advance to neoliberal globalization with, um, you know, coal, coal-fired power plants and, and, and um, you know, exhaust uh, fumes of, of, of regular cars. But it would still be fundamentally the same type of socioeconomic structure uh, that they would, they would leave in place. I think that it might be slightly different if you look at the, the Greens in the UK, for instance, who have a sort of a longer tradition in opposition in government. And from what I can see, there's a, there's a, there's a greater socioeconomic component to their program and a greater challenge to neoliberalism than you would find in the Netherlands or in Germany or, or in many other countries. So that's, that's one thing is just to be context sensitive there. Uh, when it comes to their uh, surge in these elections, I think it, it is to some extent a response to the movements that we've seen demanding uh, action on climate change. And, uh, you know, that that is in terms of the high school strikes. Uh, it's also in terms of the Extinction Rebellion in the UK. And if we look at the social composition of these movements, it's true that they tend to be, um, uh, for as far as I can see, they tend to be overwhelmingly middle class movements. Uh, and I think that this speaks, again, to the failure of the left that we started out with. Is I think that the, the left has failed to articulate a, a clear narrative where they can clearly connect the problem of climate change to the the problems of global capitalism and sort of integrate a plan for um, sort of aggressive mitigation of the of the climate crisis uh, by embedding that within uh, a language of climate justice and a language of, of social transformation. And I think that ultimately, if the left had been able to articulate that kind of narrative, 
that, for instance, in the U.S. is being pushed through the notion of the Green New Deal, uh, it might have been possible to draw together different segments of the population that include both working class people concerned about their about their social position and about their um, about their welfare, uh, but who also care about the the, the, the climate issue. And bring that together with uh, middle class voters who, you know, may be progressive on the on the social end, but are not finding at the present moment within the left parties a very strong narrative about averting ecological catastrophe. So I think that's a very important alliance to try to build. And you see that I think that that surge in green politics in a way, is, I think, is a positive development for the left. But it needs to capitalize on that and really link that to this narrative about climate justice and about perhaps like a Green New Deal. Because it's a positive development that people that there's finally kind of a, a powerful political energy around confronting, addressing the climate crisis, but it also reflects a failure of the left that it's not left parties who are benefiting from this surge. Absolutely. And I think that the, the real risk of that is that you end up in a situation where if that uh, is ultimately reflected in, in government and in policy, that concern with climate change. You have yellow vests all over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the type of policies that will be pushed through would be carbon taxes and uh, the carbon taxes that will be um, you know falling much more heavily on those who uh, have limited means and who depend on you know their cars to, to, to get to work in the morning. So precisely what you say, I mean, it, the, the burden of adjustment for the crisis would fall most heavily on the working class. And that's extremely dangerous, not only for the planet, but for the political coalitions that it engenders. Absolutely, because it would uh, potentially associate green policies or uh, or ecological measures to avert climate catastrophe or ecological catastrophe more generally with a kind of petty bourgeois concern, as opposed to you know there, there being a recognition that actually working class people are going to pay the price for the climate crisis anyway. Right. Uh, but if you know there's no mitigation, uh, they will pay the crisis in terms of they pay for the crisis in terms of adjustment after it already happened. Uh, so th- there has to be concerted action on this front, but it cannot be divorced from a broader assessment of the social crisis in which we find ourselves. And there ultimately has to be action that literally targets those who are responsible for the emissions, and those would be, um, in my view, on the production side of things, right? So it's the fuel fossil fuel industry rather than those who are at present forced to make use of cars to get to work in the morning. You can hardly blame those people. Uh, for participating in that society, because what other options do they have? The last thing I want to discuss is anti-migrant politics, which, of course, has been a a major force, both in countries that no migrants really even want to go to, like Poland and Hungary, and also for Western European governments and Northern European governments and Southern European governments that do have large numbers of migrants, like France, Germany, Italy. Migration politics are are complicated for everyone in Europe, including for, for the left, because on the one hand, the issue has caused conflict within the left. On the other hand, for pro-migrant politics, Europe poses two different and somewhat conflicted sets of problems. There's the issue of free movement within the EU and also the issue of the hardening and militarization of EU's external borders, a process, a very lethal process that has accompanied and really fortified the rise of internal free movement. Uh, I think that's a, gr- that's a great, a very important point. I think that one of the uh, fundamental premises of internal movement uh, within the EU is the militarization of the external border. And I think that came out very clearly in a recent statement by Guy Verhofstadt, who is the leader of the Alliance of Liberals and Chilling, Democrats. chilling. Yeah, right? This is the, re- this so, is the lead- lead- leader of the resistance to the far right. <laughs> exactly. This is one of the key figures who has been, uh, you know, from the European Parliament, has been lambasting uh, Nigel Farage, who's been lambasting the British uh, attempt to leave uh, the European Union uh, by sort of reasserting the supposedly liberal and democratic 
credentials of the European Union. And, and this guy literally said uh, that for four years, we fought to get a European border, border and coast guard. EU countries were blocking the attempts, but we managed to get it done. 10,000 extra border officers. And then he concluded with a statement, we need to better protect our external borders to keep our internal EU borders open. So what he's literally admitting there is that the very notion of internal movement, free movement within uh, the European Union is premised on the idea that uh, non-Europeans are kept out of those internal borders. So that if it may be allowed for Polish workers to move to the UK, it can absolutely not be tolerated that people fleeing war zones like Syria or uh, conflict areas in, in sub-Saharan Africa may want to uh, flee to Europe. So they have to actually, die in the Mediterranean. They have to die in the Mediterranean. So th I think this is a very interesting statement because what it speaks to is fundamentally that hypocrisy of the sort of the, the, the liberal uh, elite when it comes to the question of Europe, right? So there's a a notion uh, that Europe represents the internationalist ideal, that Europe represents moving beyond the sort of parochial horizon of nationalist politics. Uh, whereas in fact, what it does is it, the very process of European integration tends to reinforce Europe's identity versus the rest of the world. Uh, so the very notion of Europe is not inclusionary in that respect. It's, it's actually premised on a, on a major exclusion uh, of those who, who live outside of its borders and who might want to go to the EU to, to flee conflict or simply to pursue a better life. Uh, so I think that's absolutely fundamental, and that speaks to a real sort of contradiction at the heart of the, the liberal approach to politics in the EU. But I think it's ultimately a question that the left will have to confront as well. And I think that that's a major cleavage uh, within some left circles. And uh, I think there's a huge debate around that, especially when you look at, for instance, the work of someone like Wolfgang Streeck, who came up earlier in the conversation, uh, the German sociologist, who has been recently has been increasingly uh, vocal uh, about what he perceives to be the need to limit free movement, uh, not just from outside Europe into the European Union, but also within the European Union. And he wants to um, really reassert borders and, and, and impose migration controls as part of a left project, which to me really reeks of the kind of welfare chauvinism uh, that we've seen in the past. And is, is an extremely dangerous development because ultimately who needs the far right if the if, if, if some of the people who identify as being on the left begin to internalize some of its uh, fundamental um, uh, policy proposals uh, in terms of migration. So I think this is a very dangerous development that we need to be very wary of, uh, about and that we need to be very um, uh, vocal about opposing. Well, Jerome Rose, thank you very much. And also thanks to Chris Bickerton, who departed about 15 minutes back. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Chris Bickerton teaches at the University of Cambridge and is the author of The European Union, A Citizen's Guide. Jerome Rose is a fellow in international political economy at the London School of Economics and the author of Why Not Default, The Political Economy of Sovereign Debt. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that all forms of the state have democracy for their truth, and for that reason are false to the extent that they are not democracy. While other podcasts heavily interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, often once, but this week uh, roughly four times. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. 
Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's in iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling friends, strangers, whoever about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 